Between the eyes of fate and a feeling Impossible to see Invisible to me It was a crooked crackpot theory Fruit of a poisonous tree Shrouded in mystery This is Winning Slowly, taking a long view on technology, religion, ethics, and art, and apparently willingness to disagree with people whom nobody else disagrees with. Yeah. I'm Chris Kreitcho. And I'm Stephen Caradini. And the reason we know that is because when I read books, I usually go and read commentary about the books after the book so that I can have my viewpoints validated because I'm a human. (laughs) And... uh, I was shocked to find that uh, no one validates my viewpoints on this book in the 30-some-odd years since it's been uh, delivered as lectures. Except for me. Except for, well, Chris, which is concerning on a different front that Chris and I are slowly becoming the same (laughs) conceptual person when it comes to technology criticism, which you would imagine might happen after seven or so years of podcasting, but still, still, it was a thing that made me think, huh, hmm. Mm. Mm. But anyway, so the book in question that we disagree with where (laughs) no one else that we can find does is Ursula M. Franklin's The Real World of Technology, which was actually a series of lectures she delivered for CBC Massey Lecture Series back in 1989 and or perhaps shortly before that and were shortly thereafter published as a collection of essays effectively on technology and the relationship of technology and humans in, well, the real world. Mm -hmm. So yes, these uh, are the Massey Lectures from Canada, and Dr. Ursula Franklin is from Canada, and that's actually pretty relevant to the content of the book. So the basic premise of the book, which is what we're going to be talking about this time, mostly, is that... There is a real world that technology intervenes in. So this is sort of a resistance to techno-utopianism, to say Mm -hmm. that like there's this fake world that's imagined and that is sort of structured into. So one of her arguments is that the fake imagined world becomes the real world through the structuring of society by technology, which is on its own a really fine and dandy thesis. I think that's Mm -hmm. incontrovertible. The second part of her thesis is that people who are making decisions about technology, so technologists, who she would not count herself as part of, they are not really taking into account, one, humans, actual humans, so not just like users of technology, but literally the effects on the human population surrounding the Mm -hmm. technology use, and the environment when it comes to making technological decisions. This is also fairly uncontroversial. Yep. So I can understand why people don't have a lot of problem with this (laughs) book. It's because if you just look at the conclusions, there's, there's not very much to argue with. Right. Stephen and I both had the experience reading through this kind of hilariously of writing down in our, in our, 
fairly similar note-taking style, like, yep, check mark, check mark, wait, question mark? Squiggly, squiggly line, not sure about this. Check mark, check mark, check mark, exclamation point. The experience of reading this was like winning slowly, winning slowly, wait, hmm. Wait, 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 I'm not, wait. I'm not sure that follows. Okay, yep, I'm on board here again. <laughs> and as, uh, the first chapter it had a lot of things that it was just like, yep, Yep, this is good, this is good, agreed, this is interesting. Okay, I kind of see, maybe we have some different starting points, but yep, very good, very good. And the further I got through the book, the more it was squiggly lines and question marks and even occasional outright, no, this is wrong. Yeah, so here's where it starts. This paragraph is one that I called out to Chris as saying, look at this masterful paragraph. And Mm -hmm. regardless of my thoughts on the rest of the book, it's still masterful. Given that readers know my convictions against reading into the microphone, that's how powerful I think this paragraph (laughs) is. It is my conviction that nothing short of a global reformation of major social forces and of the social contract can end this historical period of profound and violent transformations and give a manner of security to the world and to its citizens. Such a development will require the redefinition of rights and responsibilities, and the setting of limits to power and control. There have to be completely different criteria for what is permissible and what is not. Central to any new order that can shape and direct technology and human destiny will be a renewed emphasis on the concept of justice. The viability of technology, like democracy, depends in the end on the practice of justice and on the enforcement of limits to power. If this were a sermon, I'd be shouting, Amen. (laughs) If I had read this paragraph 10 years ago, this podcast literally wouldn't exist. (laughs) I literally just would have said, yeah, that's my opinion. It is so densely excellent. Mm -hmm. Like every sentence is so spot on. It's impressive. It's mind boggling. It's, It's really good. It's really good. The rest of the book kind of doesn't do it justice. (laughs) Right. The rest of the book is mostly pretty good, but not like that. Not like that paragraph. Not like that paragraph. And it tries to develop that paragraph. And in some ways, it does develop that paragraph, but we just disagree on what that (laughs) development of the paragraph should look like. Right. So this is going to be a friendly disagreement, but like, it's going to be a disagreement. (laughs) But we should continue on through what she says in the rest of the book. I want to call out her two primary distinctions that I think drive most of the rest of her argument, and in fact, in many ways, end up driving the roots of our disagreement, as we'll cover in some detail in the second episode. Indeed. There are two distinctions introduced in the first chapter. The first between holistic technologies and prescriptive technologies, and the second between a growth model and a production model. And everything else basically falls out of those, plus her own personal history and association with the general left movement throughout the course of her long career, basically over the entirety of the Cold War era. And we'll touch on that in more detail as it becomes relevant when we talk about specific points of disagreement. But first to allow her to define what she means by these two distinctions, between holistic and prescriptive technologies and between growth and production ways of approaching things. She defines holistic technologies 
as things that are normally associated with the notion of craft. I'm going to pick here from pages 10 and 11 of my copy of the book. As a quick aside, Stephen and I have different copies. My copy has four extra chapters. I didn't read them because that would have been a really weird discussion to have. They came in a revision 10 years later. There's also a introduction that Chris has that I don't have. Mm -hmm. So I'm not giving page numbers for any of mine because <laughs> I apparently have the out of print version. We'll include the link to my version so that any page numbers we can share will be useful to you. But the out of print version is so much more interesting in its cover art. <laughs> it's just so ridiculously 80s. I do have to agree with that assessment. It is ridiculously 80s. We'll drop a picture. <laughs> Holistic technologies are normally associated with the notion of craft. So she points here to artisans, and she says their hands and minds make situational decisions as the work proceeds, be it on the thickness of the pot or the shape of the knife edge or the doneness of the roast. These are decisions that only they can make while they are working, and they draw on their own experience, each time applying it to a unique situation. The products of their work are one of a kind. By contrast, she also notes that this doesn't inherently entail solitary work. So she says, using holistic technologies does not mean that people do not work together, but the way in which they work together leaves the individual worker in control of a particular process of creating or doing something. So by holistic, she basically means whole. So mm -hmm. like you made the whole pot. It's that's right. what you did. It leaves the doer, she says, in total control of the process. And the opposite is specialization by process. This I call prescriptive technology. And here, the idea is that you break down the doing or making of something into clearly identifiable steps. And, quote, each step is carried out by a separate worker or group of workers who need to be familiar only with the skills of performing that one step. This is what is normally meant by division of labor, unquote. And she then leads into a discussion of how this came into modernity in the Industrial Revolution. But she notes that this distinction in practice is much older, and she gives examples throughout the book. Interestingly, we'll circle back to this next time. In one of her final examples of good and bad technologies, she actually offers a prescriptive technology as a good one. But I don't think she realized she had done it. We'll come back to that. Yeah. That's her notion of prescriptive and holistic technologies. Holistic means you are in control of the whole process. You are capable of executing the whole process, even if you end up doing it in community with other people. In a prescriptive technology, it's broken down such that I cannot actually do the whole of the process. I am only responsible for one part, and my skill set doesn't extend beyond that one part. So that's the distinction that she makes between holistic and prescriptive. And that drives a good chunk of the book because she makes qualitative but differential judgments about technologies. They are you cannot be in her model holistic and prescriptive. That they are mutually exclusive. They are categories upon which you have to make a decision about whether this one is holistic or it is prescriptive. Now, mm -hmm. she does allow for levels of holisticness or prescriptiveness. So things can be more or less uh, holistic or prescriptive. But it does not seem that it's possible to have uh, be it be both, which is one of the right. uh, areas where we will disagree in the second 
unit of this discussion. The other part of her argument is the growth model versus the production model. The idea here, similarly, is that production is a standardized, formalized process. It is something that results in a specific, knowable amount of thing or type of thing, and that it is structured to a high degree. You can expect things to happen. There is a level at which the end is known at the beginning. In the growth model, that's not the case. Growth is more organic. It's along the lines of farming in that you plant your seeds and you water and you do the various tasks upon which you need to do to create a plant to grow. But then you just wait and see what happens to the plant. You really can't control the plant's growth. You can control the inputs, but you can't control the outputs. And so that's one of the prime distinctions she makes is that you can always control the inputs, but you can't control the outputs of a growth model, and you can control the outputs of a production model. Right. And she thinks that the production model has been applied to wildly inappropriate portions of society, various things that are actually a growth model, and that the growth model, because it is a lack of control in some ways, has been abandoned because all these techno-optimists be (laughs) techno-optimizing. That's a good summary. She also notes very specifically here, as part of the distinction, so I'm reading from pages 20 and 21, within a growth model, all that human intervention can do is to discover the best conditions for growth and then try to meet them. Really? Really, though? In any given environment. Really? Really, though? (laughs) In any given environment, the growing organism develops at its own rate. And then on the next page, she suggests very much by way of contrast, that production inherently, and here I'm quoting, discounts and disregards all effects arising from the impact of the production activity on its surroundings. Such externalities are considered irrelevant to the activity itself and are therefore the business of someone else. So she notes in this framing, things such as pollution or the physical and mental health of the workers are other people's problems. And that is the second of the distinctions which runs throughout the rest of the book. Are things allowed to develop with a sense of givenness and in their own natural environment, as in the growth model, and inherent in her understanding of that, do they respond and understand their relationship to the environment around them to be an entailment of the growth, that overwhelming growth is destructive to the environment around it and therefore bad and the environment around it will fight back and vice versa. And then production, ah, that's an externality. Who cares? If we overgrow, well... We'll just dump pollution in the river. That's fine. That's actually the goal. Yeah. So that those two things go back and forth throughout, and she starts to build on them and make them more and more explicit in what her commitments are as she goes forward. So mm-hmm. these are the theoretical premises, but you don't get the practical premises of the book until later in chapters five and six, which is fine. That's how books can argue. They are building mm-hmm. on the premises. So, And for all that, this might be the single most readable book that we've actually encountered this entire project. It's pretty good. It's There's a book coming that's even more readable <laughs> that I'm not going to give away, but 
I would agree with Chris that this was just fun to read. It, the prose is really beautiful. Mm-hmm. The paragraphing is excellent. Mm-hmm. As a writer and an editor, I'm like, oh, look, that's a that's a paragraph. It does what a paragraph should do, as opposed to Kurzweil. <laughs> me staring off into the distance angrily everything about that book anyway in chapter two she builds on this and she brings up the point i mentioned at the beginning which is this idea of reality and so Mm -hmm. she calls vernacular reality the basics of the world this sort of idea of the growth model and holistic technologies She says, bread and butter, soup, work, clothing, and shelter, the reality of everyday life. Mm -hmm. She also points out the reality is both private and personal, but it is also common and political. Feminists have often stressed that the personal is political, and it is this realization that has affected much of my own thinking. It will also permeate through what I am going to say here. So she lays down another commitment, which will then come back to the practical in the fifth and sixth chapter, which is that this is a feminist work of technology. It is a second wave feminist setup. So it is not the suffragettes, but um, also not the third wave of the 90s and the 2000s. I'll post links to this to for people who are interested. Mm-hmm. The main thing to know here is that this is men versus women feminism This is not women versus the world feminism or intersectional different types of problem feminism that we talked about in Dark Matters. This is strictly seeing the world in binary terms, as will come up later. In the course of this chapter, she particularly calls out television as the technology that was perhaps most current in the kinds of effects she was getting at. And the nascent web is something that she clearly has in mind and she can see impacts from computing happening. But her primary concern at this point was technology in the form of television. In chapter two. Yeah, in chapter two. There are certainly echoes here of the kinds of criticism of Postman and McLuhan on the same subject. Mm -hmm. She cites certainly Postman, but I think also McLuhan explicitly. She cites everyone. It's actually kind (laughs) of amazing. She, She does cite everyone. Elul gets in there. Illich gets yeah, in there. Yeah, Marcuse gets in there. Mm-hmm. The only people that she hasn't cited literally hadn't published yet by the time <laughs> that she was doing this. Right. So she knows her stuff. This is a well-developed work of technology criticism. Even though she is technically a metallurgist, which is kind of hilarious, <laughs> she is very well-versed. She is an expert. She's an authority here. Right. We can disagree right. with it, but she knows what she's doing. She does. She calls out the ways that technologies of the sort she's concerned with decrease genuine reciprocity. And here she doesn't mean feedback. She's careful to note that. But that the kinds of things that happen when you have a, quote, community formed by television are what she calls pseudo-community. People who have seen and heard the same thing but didn't have any experience of it themselves and weren't actually there. The word there does a fair bit of work in this chapter. And then she connects that to things like economic shifts like futures markets and commodity exchanges Mm -hmm. and the ability to trade in these. And again, that there's a disconnection, even at that economic level, between 
your actual physical embodied presence with other people and in time and space. Which is what she calls vernacular reality and this imagined future, which she calls projected reality. So she thinks that this kind of disconnect is one of the critical issues that confronts society. She thinks a question that we have to address is how will our society cope with its problems when more and more people live in technologically induced human isolation? Which question has only become more important as time has gone on since then? Because as much as that was true in a world with television and Walkmans, it is as much or more true today, and the phenomena she identified there are no less true if in somewhat a different shape in the social media era, in which, again, you've lost that reciprocity even while profoundly magnifying what she calls feedback, getting a response from people, but without mutuality in the interaction. It's incessant broadcast from everyone rather than, in general, actual direct communication. So she mentions that viewing or listening to television, radio, or videos is shared experience carried out in private. And then she throws in the printing technologies were the first ones that allowed people to take in separately the same information, then discuss it together, which is what uh, Eisenstein mm-hmm. said. So Eisenstein, yep. You, you may be wondering, what do they disagree with? They keep loving it. <laughs> Don't worry, dear listener. Chapter three picks up her notion of prescriptive and holistic divisions of labor and then says, so why are these so deeply entrenched? And she argues over the course of chapter three that what has happened over the course of the last couple centuries is governments actively becoming tools and agents of effectively technologists and building structures of society and government to support the development of technology rather than the development of human culture. Now, we'll come back to that because in many ways, I think that distinction I just suggested, which is core to her argument in chapter three. Uh, It's it's core to the rest of the book, actually. Exactly. And I think it's very much a root of where some of my disagreements come from, though I agree with her. To some extent. That in many ways, technologies do, in fact, get promoted by governments, which often do see their role as primarily building out more technologies, not least because they see their role as strengthening the economy, which is usually these days framed in terms of technological investment and innovation. So while I didn't have a lot of particular quotes I wanted to pull out from chapter three, I think it's the hinge of the book in a lot of ways. It is the hinge. The point of this particular chapter is to argue that there is a technological governmental system that technologists have convinced government that the best thing they can do in governing is to do more technology stuff. And she even takes this back to like roads and stuff that like roads are not really for the benefit of people. They're for the benefit of moving products back and forth. And then everything else beyond roads as a technology is just more accommodation for technology and technologists. And especially like budgets are more and more accommodating to technology than they are to people at large. The one thing I want to quote from this chapter that I thought was an excellent point, even though I think in many ways this chapter sets the foundation for my disagreements with where she goes later in the book, is her note on page 52 
The web of technology can indeed be woven differently. But even to discuss such intentional changes of pattern requires an examination of the features of the current pattern and an understanding of the origins and the purpose of the present design. That's kind of like a charter for about half of what this podcast tries to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This was an excellent summary at times, even though I think her key contention in this chapter that government investment in these kinds of things really only exists for the sake of technology technologies and not for humans continues to hammer down that distinction between humans and technologies humans and their technologies that we'll talk about a lot in our next episode yeah. but first let's finish summarizing also this the chapter <laughs> cites foucault and elul and mumford in one chapter yep like dang true that so chapter four is about how technologies fragment work that's literally from the first paragraph i was actually really fascinated by this because i professionally study work i study how people do things mm -hmm. professionally like for money and so this was very interesting to me she says Many technological systems, when examined for context and overall design, are basically anti-people. People are seen as sources of problems, while technology is seen as a source of solution. Mm -hmm. And again, we've railed against that solutionism. It's a bad thing. We get it. <laughs> but one of the things that she does here is she puts in a binary situation workers who are noted to be just basically good like workers equal good and machines right. equal bad it is pretty straightforward yeah underlying that i think pretty clearly she doesn't really come out and say this but if you look at all of the politics she expresses throughout the book is well this might have occurred to you when you heard steven say workers are good Technological capital, emphasis on capital, is bad in, in her broad political outlook. And she may never quite come out and say that, but it's pretty clear. Again, we'll circle back to she that. She does not cite Marx. Explicitly. Explicitly. But she doesn't. And so she uses this frame of work, which I was really interested in, to talk about the military-industrial complex, which I was really not interested in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we've talked about it a bunch of times which is why i'm not interested in it so right. i right. am super not cool with the military industrial complex but like i also am not interested in reading about it except that one of my favorite side notes she puts in on what is my page 78 remember star wars and i was like oh yeah people were still calling strategic defense initiative star wars at that point <laughs> like that's super cool look at that historical note i bet that's not even in your version of the book no it's it's still there oh it is that's great <laughs> I, I called it out as well. This chapter also has the one moment in the book that actually made me laugh out loud. Uh huh. She's describing in what is page 85 in the, uh, a long discussion of the environment and nature and some legitimate and real and worth calling out problems around how technology, quote, denies the existence and the reality of nature. For instance, there's little sense of season as one walks through a North American or Western European supermarket. She notes at the end of page 85 and the beginning of page 86, 
Nature is then the outside for us who are in an internal cocoon. Indeed, technology does allow us to design nature out of much of our lives. This, however, may be quite stupid. <laughs> I, it was just such a great, great... I'm just going to call this one. She doesn't really come out quite like that most no. of the time. She, she lets you draw nuanced. your conclusions. She may even be firm, but this, however, may be quite stupid. <laughs> and she continues, people are part of nature, whether they like it or not. Machines and instruments will thrive and work well in even temperatures and constant humidity. People, in fact, may mm-hmm. not. It, yeah, it was great. a great line. I literally laughed out yeah. loud for it. One thing here is that she starts to play out some of her directly feminist concerns mm-hmm. here about women's work and women's ways of dealing with planning, which is mm-hmm. a particular interest of hers. She says, planning, mm-hmm. in my sense of the word, originated with prescriptive technologies. And again, she means planning is sort of like controlling the inputs and the outputs. As prescriptive technologies have taken over most of the activities in the real world of technology, planning has become society's major tool for structuring and restructuring, for stating what is doable and what is not. The effects of lives being planned and controlled are very evident in people's individual reactions to the impingement of planning on them. And so she basically says that like when something's inconvenient, he's like, oh, well, you know, that's how it is. And she says, well, it doesn't have to be how Mm -hmm. it is. And she compares... Women in particular have developed such schemes over the centuries, arrangements that are not a surrender to randomness, but an allotment of time and resources based on situational judgments, quite akin to what I described earlier as the characteristics of holistic technologies. So she's setting up the ways that second wave feminists described women's ways of dealing with conflict and situations against men's ways of dealing with conflict and situations, which are prescriptive. And right. she's literally doing, I'm not interpreting. That's what's happening right here. Nope. She says women are the more holistic and men made prescriptive yeah. things happen. So again, dragging the whole thing forward bit by bit. Mm-hmm. She also talks a lot about her work as an environmentalist activist in Canada in this section. And that's important because of... The quote that she says, she wishes that sometimes I think if I were granted one wish, it would be that the Canadian government would treat nature the way Canadian governments have always treated the United States of America with utmost respect and as a great power. Whenever suggestions for political action are placed before the government of Canada, the first consideration always seems to be, what about the Americans? They may not like it. They may let their displeasure be seen and felt. They may retaliate. And what about nature? Obviously, nature does not take kindly to what is going on in the real world of technology. So she's starting to like bring all of the lines together in this mm-hmm. chapter. And then she goes to chapter five, which chapter five and six get real, real. Yep. These are the places where she brings home the philosophy that she's largely outlined. She starts doing this in chapter four, but chapters five and six are really application of philosophy. So chapter five opens with a discussion of the development of technology and how that plays out. She talks about early imagination of things, including via science fiction. She doesn't seem to be all that excited by or enthusiastic about science fiction, given how she sees it as a tool for invention and technologism in not a great way which is she then fair. talks about fair yep 
in science fiction's defense, science fiction is simultaneously the most hopeful and the most dystopian of genres. It does, it does both, both it does a both. lot. It doesn't usually do the middle ground where humans keep just doing the same things. My favorite sci-fi does that, but... Except Star Trek Deep Space Nine. <laughs> the Expanse does that, and it makes me happy. And then technology initially goes through this phase of adoption where it has the early adopters, the enthusiasts. Then it gets into the standardization mode. And she calls out here the example of how car culture developed, that initially there was a lot of enthusiasm about manual work on the car and people sharing tips and tricks for working on it and how they made their cars perform better and all of these things. Eventually, though, cars just became a deeply ingrained part of our technological society, and most people don't care about maintaining them. Most people don't want to maintain them. They'll just take them to make the mechanic if something comes up, and they don't have them particularly because they want to. They have them because they have to in order to exist in a car-mediated society. We've talked about this at length. Yeah, and then she also compares that to computers Mm -hmm. and then to sewing machines. You're like, sewing machines? Mm -hmm. Sewing machines. Um, And she says... Sewing machines became, in fact, synonymous not with liberation, but with exploitation. The sewing machines at home were used less as machine-sewn household goods and garments began to be readily available on the mass market. These garments were produced by the prescriptive technologies that created a situation in which one seamstress only sewed up sleeves, another worker put them in, another made buttonholes, another pressed the shirts. A strictly prescriptive technology with the classic division of labor arose from the introduction of new, supposedly liberating domestic machines. In the subsequent evolution of the garment industry, much of the designing, cutting, and assembling began to be automated, often to the complete exclusion of workers. So that brings together basically all of the strands of her argument up to that point. Mm -hmm. I have lots of things to say about this chapter. Except... We're going to hold off. Yes. I'm mostly going to leave those for the next episode. Otherwise, we're never going to finish this episode <laughs> because we're both going to have major problems. with Yes. That, and there's a lot to say there. She concludes in the sixth chapter by working through how change works and what she thinks needs to happen. Quote, if the real world of technology is to become a globally livable habitat and with some practical suggestions along the way. So she looks at computers. She looks at nuclear power. She looks at bureaucracies and managerial Mm -hmm. culture. She Mm -hmm. looks at how social change works. And she says, and I, I like this, she she subscribes to what she calls, quote, Franklin's earthworm theory of change. Social change will not come to us like an avalanche down the mountain. Social change will come to us through seeds growing in well-prepared soil. And it is we, like the earthworms, who prepare the soil. I have winning slowly exclamation point written I, to the side I of also, that. I also said, yeah, that's what we've been doing for years now. What's up? So... I think chapter six's whole argument can be summed up in one sentence. And she says, there are choices to be made. Mm -hmm. And I, for one, see no reason why our technologies could not be more participatory and less expert driven. And this is the part of the argument that she adds in chapter six. Mm -hmm. And that has been hinted at throughout. That is part of the reason that this book is revered is that It's a pretty early instantiation of the idea of user 
invested technology mm-hmm. or user-centered technology or whatever term we want to call it these days because it has a lot of names. It's one of the pretty early instantiations in this particular vein. There's obviously lots of like peace movement type things that happened outside of this vein of technology criticism that talk about how like maybe we should be asked if we want this technology. <laughs> but within this line of technology criticism, this is actually a really positive move is instead of like a lot of other tech critics who are like, and we should just quit. Let's just quit. <laughs> right. No technology. She says, no, no, we can do technology, but you should ask the people who it's going to affect first. Mm -hmm. You should ask them, like, if they want nuclear power or if they want pipelines or if they want whatever, and you should get their input. And that's going to take a long time and going to be hard, but it would produce a better world, in her opinion, particularly one because she argues that externalities that companies push off are pushed onto people. And so if you talk to people, then they will reintegrate those externalities into the decision-making process right. because like, no one likes getting pollution dumped on them. And so if someone says like, hey, won't this make pollution that's dumped in my river, then that's part of the process now. Whereas before it was like, there's a river, we can dump in it. Right. I grew up in Oklahoma where people dumped in rivers all the time yep. with about that level of justification. Yep. And she connects this then back to her notion of prescriptive and holistic technologies while elaborating it into a distinction between individual experience, as suggested by those holistic technologies as she originally described it, and expertise. And there's an interesting kind of skepticism or hostility are the wrong words, but perhaps ambivalence toward the idea of the expert in this chapter and toward expertise, in part because she wants to suggest that there is a kind of expertise grounded in experience, which, quote, may not be as clear-cut and decisive as one might expect to obtain in laboratory research programs, but is an important source of information. And she doesn't want that information discarded or marginalized. And that's a very feminist move Mm -hmm. to take, is to say that like lived experience is part of the way Mm -hmm. that we actually participate in the world. This harkens back to Dark Matters, and that's because Dark Matters is a further iteration on this this Mm -hmm. theme. So to be the bluntest that she is in the entire book, she says, I hold that, in fact, we have lost the institution of government in terms of responsibility and accountability to the people. We now have nothing but a bunch of managers who run the country to make it safe for technology. So that's her argument about the real world of technology, is that people aren't involved and anybody else is just doing it for the technology. Mm-hmm. If that sounds fairly techno-determinist to you, hmm, mm. hmm, I say, hmm. hmm. Maybe we'll hmm. talk about that in our next episode. So... To recap, this book is really easy to read. Its prose is beautiful. It's written excellently. It's it's a really good piece of writing. And it's really fun to disagree with, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. it's You know why? It's because the arguments are clear. Yep. <laughs> but also not stupid like Kurzweil's. Kurzweil's arguments yeah. were, were clear, but stupid. Uh, yeah. These are clear actually understand the literature with which they're engaging and are reasonable even when we're disagreeing with it. You see how she gets there. She makes a good argument and a compelling argument even where we think she's wrong. 
Yeah, she does not have a whole lot of holes, per se, in the argument. There are no magic question marks <laughs> that then result in the next thing. And so it's a good book. It is, in the end, like we said, it really wants people to be involved in the technological processes. Mm -hmm. And it's not even anti-technology on the whole. It is right. anti a specific type of technology. So it even takes a moderated stance on like technology, capital T. So it it is it is the sort of thing where like if winning slowly was a house, like this person <laughs> might live in a house next to our house and like we might hang out sometimes, but also complain about the choices that they're making with their young. Yeah, I like it. I like it. That's a choice you can make, but it's that's not a choice I would make. And it makes our <laughs> collective houses uglier. So the music at the beginning of the episode was Mission Plan by Matthew Shaw. It's deeply ironic that it's about <laughs> a plan for a mission. Being, I did not do that in advance. I didn't. By a dude. By a dude. I did not see that coming. I, I booked <laughs> this, this song months ago before I even owned the book. It's, it's true. That's weird. This was, this was booked back in May. <laughs> that is weird. <laughs> Thanks, as always, to everyone who sponsors the show. You can sponsor the show yourself at cash.me slash dollar sign winning slowly or patreon.com slash winning slowly. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can do so via Patreon if you're a sponsor. You can, if you're a fancy enough sponsor, hop in our team's chat where we talk about episodes and things you almost we'll have a dedicated slack. room for you i did almost <laughs> say slack but i caught myself and you can shoot us a note on facebook or twitter steven will see those eventually and respond to them or you can see us an email and we'll both see them quickly yep. and steven will fairly quickly respond to them and i will just smile and wave as they go that's by. that's right that's right as always thanks, thanks for, for listening, listening.